My name is Donna Higa-Jackson. I'm a clinical licensed therapist in the state of Virginia. What is unconscious bias? Well, I, I think we all have it. Um, I think it's when you make a decision you don't realize why you made it, and um, and you make the assumptions. Well, I think you make you may, I call it the halo effect. You make the assumptions about you know if you're from I'm going to tease you. If you're from New York, all New Yorkers in your head, I might treat you differently because I think maybe you're going to be more brass and direct. And not even realizing why I'm doing that. So unconscious bias, I think, is having stereotypes that you develop over time and not realizing that you still are projecting those stereotypes on the person you're talking to. If there is some differences, whether it's racial, um, cultural, um, just even regional. Even even gender, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. What does intent versus impact mean? You know, we were just talking about that, and I use that in therapy. Um, I use it on myself. What Most of our intent, so my intent might be, um, intent is what you, you think you're saying to someone, right? So I may say, um, gosh, you know, Maya, <laughs> um, I wish you would think about, you know, changing something about yourself. Well, I might have seen it as helping you to enhance yourself. You might have taken it as, I really just hurt your feelings, and the impact was Donna was pretty nasty to me, and I don't know where that was coming from. So that was very simplistic, but it's our intent is what we're saying or doing that we think we're projecting. The impact is understanding the impact either on the community, on the person, on the um, you know, on whatever where we're directing our um, whatever our action or our voice was. So that's the difference. And, and I think it's important to know what your impact is. Impact can be really, really a positive thing. It can be a very hurtful thing. But having to be willing to hear the impact that it may have caused. First, let me start this episode by saying I am very thankful for the First Amendment and its protection of free speech and a free press, especially at a time when the press are continuously attacked by this current administration who is using the most powerful office in the land to intimidate them and his hope of delegitimizing their reporting. I want the best for them. I want them to be protected and to remain safe. I am also worried about the fact that so many local papers, where some of the most important reporting is done, has had to lay off many reporters or shut down altogether. In this day and age, we don't need less accountability. We need more. It is in this spirit that I want the press to do well. But I am frustrated when it comes to how they have covered and continue to cover women presidential candidates. Whether their bias is unconscious or not, they have participated in sexist and misogynistic coverage of Hillary Clinton and now Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Elizabeth Warren. They seem not to be following the zeitgeist, but setting it. They are also quick to parrot some of the male candidates' talking points and not the female candidates, and they've done this without clarification. For example, Bernie Sanders managed to get the media, mostly in unison, to call Hillary Clinton an establishment candidate, without questioning why a man 
who had served in Congress since 1991, the very definition of establishment, had managed to escape that label. The media has managed to make the words authentic, like ability, and electability have one meaning for male candidates and a different one for female candidates. If you're like me, you've probably been told, that's all in your head. We've been gaslit to the point of burnout. Then Story Bench, part of Northeastern University's Media Innovation Graduate Program at their School of Journalism, published an article this past week entitled, Women on the 2020 Campaign Trail are Being Treated More Negatively by the Media. There it was in print. It wasn't all in my head. They analyzed over 130 articles from mainstream news outlets and found that women were simply facing more scrutiny than men. I will link that article in the body of this podcast along with my interview with one of its authors, Alec Franson. Some of this negativity towards the 2020 female candidates I had witnessed on Twitter from journalists, and I approached a few of them, all white males, on why they had diminished or dismissed Kamala Harris's $12 million fundraising haul. One of those journalists was NBC political reporter Jonathan Allen, who wrote me back on Twitter asking if I could give him a call after I told him his tweet about Senator Harris was problematic. Not only that, but these reporters already are starting to set the dreaded horse race coverage that is so damaging to our political discourse because it sucks all of the oxygen out of the room. Even Jonathan Allen's tweet that I took issue with sounds like a literal horse race track announcer. Harris raised 12 million. She's a senator from California. Buttigieg raised 7 million. He's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Warren just dumped finance chief. Expect that number to be low. Biden is at zero. Sanders could be at 20 million. Better raise more than half of Harris's total in two days. Harris's number isn't awful, but the one big question is whether she will to raise this kind of money for the duration of the race. She's going to need more money to run a long race. Not Iowa or a bus, but her number may look bigger when others report. So, on the surface, that may not seem so bad, and it's certainly not the worst offender from the members of the media, like this one from Chris Eliza. The $12 million for Harris makes Buttigieg $7 million look that much better. I take everything Chris Eliza says with a grain of salt and a shot of tequila, because he has been so consistent in his sexism when covering women I can only assume he has an intricate extortion plot against CNN, guaranteeing his employment. But I digress. The way Jonathan framed his horse race tweet gave the appearance that Harris, a black woman, was Goliath, since she was a senator from the most populous state, and Buttigieg and Beto as the Davids, since Buttigieg is a gay white man and a mayor from a small town, and Beto, a white man who is currently unemployed and a former representative. In a world where systemic racism, misogyny, and discrimination don't exist, that tweet would have been fine, but it's problematic because he was comparing and contrasting Kamala and Elizabeth Warren's financial hall to that of the all-white male candidate's financial hall without discussing how press coverage or historical and present discrimination played a role. I'll get into that in a moment. I asked Jonathan, when you wrote that tweet, what was your intent? He said, I think like everyone else in my business, I'm trying to, at some level, I'm trying to digest information to be early out or quick out with a thought about what it means, you know, my interpretation. I look at a lot of political fundraising numbers. I think first quarter fundraising numbers aren't the most important thing in any presidential campaign. 
They have some value. Donors will look at them. Future donors will look at them. Voters will look at them. All of those things have an effect. I look at that and try to digest it. I can see from Harris coming out second with those numbers that she's relatively proud of those numbers. They don't feel like they did poorly. Okay, he said much more than that. But I want you to see that his intent was just to report the numbers and that he wasn't really thinking of the impact of reporting those numbers in the manner that he did. Nor was he thinking about the historical context, the obstacles of the past and present that women face running for office. I know he didn't because I asked him that. He, like so many other members of the media, may not truly be imbibing the systemic obstacles and backstories of some of the women running for office, like Kamala Davy Harris, who was born to an Indian mother and Jamaican father in Oakland, California, in 1964. She was born a year before black people could legally vote in this country, a year after civil rights activist Medgar Evers was assassinated in his own driveway by Ku Klux Klan members, a year after the Alabama church bombing that would kill four little black girls, three years before Martin Luther King was assassinated, three years before it would be legal to have an interracial relationship and marriage. On top of our historical legacy, of legally enforced segregation and slavery and systemic discrimination. Kamala, like Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand, were all born in a country that still does not have a constitutional amendment stating that civil rights may not be denied on the basis of one's gender. In this context, being a black woman in America that is fraught with issues of racism and misogyny, Kamala raising $12 million in the first quarter of fundraising is absolutely solid and even worth celebrating. The fact of the matter is the media is still majoritarily owned, operated, and run by white males. They're choosing what is covered, how it's covered, and what we see and hear. According to the 2019 Women in Media study by the Women Media Center, editors in the nation's 135 most widely distributed papers are overwhelmingly male and white, according to the Columbia Journalism Review. Men own 92.6% of the nation's commercial TV stations, according to the federal government's most recent tally. Men report and produce the majority of U.S. news, although the biggest gender gap is at the news wires and TV evening broadcasts, according to Women Media Center's Divided 2019, the media gender gap. 69% of newswire bylines, think AP, are snagged by men, 31% by women, by far the biggest gender gap in news media. 63% of TV primetime news broadcasts feature male anchors. 60% of online news is written by men. 59% of print news is written by men. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Houston, we do have a problem. And in this episode, I want to talk about the impact the media is having when they are missing the frames to see the big picture of women in politics and women in power. For the interview today, I speak with Dr. Valerie Sperling, professor of political science at Clark University. Dr. Sperling teaches a variety of courses in comparative politics, including Russian politics, revolution and political violence, globalization and democracy, and introduction to women's studies. Her research interests include globalization and accountability, social movements, and gender politics.
So I'm Valerie Sperling, and I'm a professor of political science at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. And what drew you to your occupation? Well, I guess I should say that um, within the field of political science, I study Russia. And what drew me to that, the desire to study Russia, was that when I was in college, back in the day, it was the Cold War. And we were really all living under this threat of nuclear war all the time. And so I wanted to learn Russian so that perhaps I could become an arms control negotiator and help and the Cold War. And what I found was that the first period of time that I spent abroad um, in Russia, which at that time was the Soviet Union, I just became fascinated by domestic politics um, over there. And so the rest is history. That is a very unique ambition that I've heard. It's not in my circle, but I think it's amazing. Yeah, um, I, I, of course, I did, I did not end up becoming a... <laughs> I might have to point out, although the Cold War did end, um, yes. I'm not going to go and take credit for it, but now it's begun again. So that's why exactly. my job has become so much more interesting. Exactly. Oh my gosh. What early obstacles did you have to your career with your career? You know, I, um, I would not say that I had a lot of obstacles to my career as a, you know, as a professor of political science. Of course, I worried that I wouldn't get a job. Um, in my field. And that was a very real worry. And I think everybody worried about that. But really, I had fantastic support, both from my, both from my family, and also from my professors from Gail Lapidus and George Breslauer and um, Harley Balzer and Thane Gustafson, who really were right behind me. And I think just were extremely supportive and helpful. And, uh, you know, and I'm grateful. What's the number one misunderstanding people have about your job? As as a professor, I think the biggest misunderstanding um, is that uh, after we're done teaching, they they kind of roll us back into the closet, you know, (laughs) Um, and and uh, and you know, people will say things like, "Oh, it's so great, you don't have to work over the summer," you know. But the fact is, part of our job is teaching, and then the other part of our job is doing research and writing, you know, books and articles and trying to spread the knowledge that we have beyond the classroom. So I think that's probably the biggest uh, gap in the understanding of what a, what does a professor do. So it sounds like you never stop working, is the... That's exactly correct. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, but, the, but the corollary to that, though, is that at least I can speak for myself. I love my job. There's not a job that I would rather do. Oh, then that's all anyone can hope for. Yeah. Uh, what's one of the number one issues that persist in your field? So by issues, meaning problems, right? Yeah. And it could be within your field or it could be as someone who is in your field. You know, um, my friend, Dr. Hazel Levy, she's a a science professor at UF and she's black and she's Jewish. And she has found that um, people don't tend to refer to her by Dr. Levy. They tend to be more informal with her. Mm -hmm. Um, She hasn't, when she was um, at Harvard, she found that some of the people that she was working with maybe didn't take her as seriously as some of the other men that were in the field with her since she's a scientist. So I just wanted to see if, you know, you maybe had some of those same issues or if you see issues in your field, um, not being inclusive. Yeah, I see what you're talking about. So, um, certainly in political science, there is still a lack of, uh, of diversity. Um, we have, we definitely don't have enough, um, black, faculty. That's maybe less true for the field 
the subfield of political science called American politics. I think mm. we're a little better um, in that area, but certainly for what I do, you know, in studying Russia, not a lot of black uh, scholars um, right. studying Russia. So I do think that there's a, you know, I do think there's a certain lack of diversity. I think within political science, in terms of as a scholarly field, there are still ways in which women's and gender studies uh, are not seen as fully legitimate um, areas of study. I think that that is persisting. I do think it's changing. I think it's shifting, but I do still think that that, that does remain something of an obstacle or, or a problem uh, in political science. It seems to be um, an issue academically across the field, still an issue. And it is in, you know, Congress and <laughs> in most fields, there's not really parity or a lot of inclusion, but it's, it's interesting to see. Um, I've had most people say they've started to see changes. So that's good. Absolutely. I mean, just as a concrete example, right? So two books ago, um, I put out a book called Sex, Politics, and Putin mm. about political legitimacy in Russia and how masculinity and femininity and homophobia get used as kind of political um, tools, right? right. Um, to either undermine a politician who's not on your team or to try to support a politician who is, you know, on your team. And so when I submitted my book manuscript, one of the reviewers, you know, wrote back, oh, and I should, I guess I should say, um, and in the, in the book, I also interviewed young Russian feminists to kind of get their take on why this was happening. You know, like, um, how come, you know, masculinity was such a big deal and, Russian politics. And so one of the reviewers, one of the peer reviewers of the manuscript said, why should we care what a handful of marginal feminists has to say? <laughs> and, wow. and, you know, I have to say, I thought that was not so much a, you know, a constructive critique as just right. sort of an ideological disagreement. Um, and, and that's, and that's what I mean. And another reviewer uh, said, and again, these are not post-publication reviews. These are pre-publication reviews. Um, another reviewer said, you know, my problem is not a problem with this particular book. It's with the whole sub-discipline of, you know, women's studies. Wow. So, you know, so I mean, that's it's still out there. I, I don't think it's by any means um, as pervasive as it was, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, but it's yeah, still an issue. Yeah, at least, I mean, we are, these conversations are more in the mainstream than they used to be. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, so I want to talk about, you know, your background is absolutely fascinating and amazing. And it's so perfect for this time period that we're in right now. Mm -hmm. And um, as you know, our U.S. intelligence community said that Russia did interfere in our election in 2016 and 2018 by generating discord on social media. If any, if anybody who's on social media, you know kind of either fell for it or um, got riled up by some of the things that they were doing to sow division in our already divided country. Um, much of the interference was kind of playing on America's multiple vulnerabilities, um, our history of legacy, our historical legacy of slavery that we still haven't really confronted, legally enforced racial segregation, our struggle for equal rights. We know that Putin associates masculinity with power and Trump has done his best to emulate that did you see any evidence of Russia weaponizing gender politics in the last presidential election? Um, 
I don't think Russia had to weaponize gender politics in our last presidential election. I think we uh, did a pretty good job of that all by our uh, all by ourselves. But but this was an election in which gender played uh, a heightened role because we had an overtly misogynist man at the top of the ticket running against the first female major party presidential candidate. You know, so from you know from Trump complaining that Clinton was playing the woman card or calling her a nasty woman or the T-shirts that said you know, Trump that bitch. G- gender politics was just right in the thick of it. Now that said, I mean, certainly Putin doesn't like Hillary Clinton, you know, had an animus uh, against her, thought she was responsible perhaps as Secretary of State under uh, President Barack Obama for perhaps helping foster the color revolutions uh, in the former Soviet space, you know, to foster regime change against dictators, right. which he fears. But there's no way that he thought that Trump would win I think the I think right. the interference was designed to delegitimate democracy to make it look unreliable and as you said you know to sow discord in uh, in, in U.S. society. What were some of the other ways that gender politics played a role in 2016? You know, I think gen- gender politics in the sense of how masculinity and femininity were used to try to like bolster or undermine candidates' legitimacy. I think that was prevalent in the. 2016 elections. And, and and actually, I would argue gender politics are always part of any election and, and, and at a very fundamental level, because most of the traits that we associate with political leadership, you know, especially at the presidential level, are more associated with men than with women. So right. such as being decisive, you know, as versus being emotional or being tough as versus being gentle or caring. I, women presidential candidates have to show that they are tough enough, you know, and firm enough to even be qualified for the job without simultaneously coming across as unfeminine. And so women in our society are supposed to be pleasing and kind and, you know, somewhat deferential. Uh, These are stereotypical aspects of of femininity. So of course, gender politics enters into our elections because a woman who comes across as decisive and tough, you know, may also be frowned upon for being nasty, you know, and, and shrill Mm -hmm. uh, to just take two adjectives that were applied to Hillary Clinton, you know, getting, called nasty or shrill for ostensibly violating stereotypes of niceness. And that is a challenge that men don't face to the same um, extent. Although to be fair, right, male candidates can be undermined by opponents calling them weak because that's a character stereotypically uh, associated with femininity or or otherwise questioning their masculinity. Like when Trump referred to um, Marco Rubio as little Marco or to Jeb Bush as being low energy, hint, hint, you know, during the Republican primary, uh, you know, in 2016. The media kind of used a lot of those words you just said. Mm -hmm. Do you think they were willing participants and playing into gender stereotypes or, or, or is this like kind of a, was an unconscious thing on their part? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, I think especially if you include social media, I think you could see a fair amount of repeating gender stereotypes uh, on purpose, like in the way that Clinton was talked about. Although your point about you know unconsciousness, I think is a you know people just having these concepts in in their um, you know in their minds and, and not really even conscious or intentional way. It's kind of I think I think of gender stereotypes as being kind of the lowest common denominator. It's something that everybody understands, you know, without even having to, you know, to analyze too much. We know that if a man is being called weak, that it's something bad. (laughs) So so in terms of, uh, you know, how the media played into it, I mean, there were certainly repeated critical references to Clinton's voice, you know, saying that she was shrill or, you know, referring to her 
you know, to the way that she laughed as being a cackle, which is obviously right. associated with being a witch, which still has a bad connotation in our society. And, right. you know, and suggesting she was not sufficiently warm, you know, and not sufficiently feminine in her clothes. And, and you know, and even things like the deplorables comment that she made. Right. Uh, I think anybody would acknowledge this. Is, it, it's a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. But it becomes a huge deal for her because I think saying it violated the feminine stereotype of having to be nice um, and pleasing. And you, you think about the, you know, there's the so many things that Trump said that were so, you know, that were equally offensive or more offensive. And, and, and it wasn't so much the problem that he had said it because he wasn't violating, you know, that stereotype of having to be nice uh, and pleasing all the time. And I, and I think in terms of other stereotypes, you know, Clinton was repeatedly described as appearing tired and haggard or having a lack of stamina and having health problems, you know, and I think that all links up with the gender stereotype in, in, in two ways, actually one that she's too weak, you know, to be president. And also I think for women um, being old is another way of saying uh, no longer sufficiently uh, attractive to be properly feminine. Right. And sometimes I wonder if this is like a conscious playbook because, you know, like the Southern strategy that mm-hmm. Lee Atwater and other people have to, de- you know, they have deployed this for years and it's always kind of changed a little bit in how they decide to do this. Like I look at Fox News mm-hmm. now and instead of them saying blatantly racist stuff, they hire two black people to say it for them or they have <laughs> so um so yeah I was I'm just curious is this do you think this is could be a playbook um on some of their parts to kind of deploy these words I mean do I give them that much credit yeah I, I don't know I mean I'm not sure about the media I, I can say you know I can say something about uh the people who make um campaign ads and this is something that I've learned over the last few years by working with my colleague at Clark, um, Rob Boatwright, who is a specialist on campaigns and elections in the U.S., um, and we just put a book together that should be out next year on masculinity and misogyny. That's exciting. What t- do you have a title for it yet? Yeah, it's going to be called "Trumping Politics as Usual: Masculinity, Misogyny, and the U.S. 2016 Elections." Okay, perfect. Um, and what I learned from you know, working on that book, because in, in part, we looked at Senate ads, the ads in the competitive Senate um, campaigns in the 2016 election. But I, something I learned that was really surprising to me was that the people who make ads, whose job it is, you know, to make these campaign ads, they know a ton about gender stereotypes. Mm. Uh, they are very aware. They have I, I guess what I would call maybe a feminist consciousness, but aren't using it in a pro. <laughs> right, they're weaponizing it negatively. Yeah. yeah. So, so for example, they're very well aware that when a woman is running for the Senate, if she campaigns next to her husband, like if he comes out to support her and say, Oh, she's you know, really terrific, whatever it ought it, it's kind of bad for her automatically because he looks more senatorial than she does just because he's a man. Right. So they have to be very careful about that. They also have to be very careful about, um, you know, whereas in the opposite case, right, if a man is running, you want him shown with his wife to prove that he's a good sort of red blooded heterosexual American man, um, who women find appealing and attractive. So um, but but similarly, they're also really aware that that the stereotype is that a woman's place is in the domestic sphere in the home and that if you show her in the home you know with her kids it's gonna 
kind of unintentionally reinforce the idea that she's actually not capable in the public sphere. Mm. Uh, and by the same token, they need to show male candidates as being compassionate because that's something that men can maybe, you know, not be, um, you know, maybe, uh, men aren't necessarily seen in the, in that light. And of course, if they're seen as too compassionate, then it's bad because then they're weak. But right. it was just remarkable to me how, how educated and familiar they with, they were, they were with um, these kinds of gender stereotypes and how they use them intentionally mm. in their, uh, in their advertising. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. Um, you said in an article uh, from Storybench. um, that just came out about how the media had been kind of covering the 2020 female candidates. You said, I think a good first step would be for media outlets to familiarize themselves with the fact that standards of behavior are different for women and and men as candidates. Can you expound on that and how the media could start doing this? Sure. Um, So for one example, uh, Hillary Clinton, as we were just talking about, was frequently criticized for her voice, right? Shrillery and all of that. And for, you know, for ostensibly shouting, you know, uh, whereas Bernie Sanders, who by my way of hearing, definitely spent a lot of time shouting, uh, that kind of his mode, uh, he was not criticized for that because it's seen as appropriate for men to raise their voices, whether to express anger or just to put across their their point of view, but it's not appropriate or it's not seen as appropriate for women to do so. And there's a good um, new book by Rebecca Traster called yes. Good and Mad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it contains innumerable example um, of women in politics, uh, especially I would say black women in politics being portrayed, you know, as crazy and unhinged, right. you know, for getting even slightly angry or loud Um in public. And so I think, you know, that's the kind of thing the media could be more aware of. You know, just this morning, actually, uh, I heard a story on NPR where they were asking young people, who do you support kind of in the Democratic crop of, you know, candidates in the primary? Mm-hmm. You know, people talked about Sanders and Beto O'Rourke and, uh, and um, uh, the mayor in Indiana, Bujicic. And, right. um, and at some point in the story, the reporter said, you know, they, these young people, they really didn't make a lot of mention of the women candidates in the field, right? The fact there were a lot of them. And I thought to myself, you know, in light of this interview that we were going to do today, okay, so it's good that they mentioned that, but there was no analysis of that. And maybe they just should have poked a little further until they could find somebody who thought that Kamala Harris was their favorite and who they would like to, you know, and who they would like to stand up for as a delegate. Right. Exactly. And to me, um, one of my frustrations is that the reason I wanted to do this episode in particular was when Kamala Harris raised $12 million. Mm. Um, I saw it immediately dismissed in the media, like rather quickly by Mm. white male journalists. They made it in comparison. They compared and contrasted it with Pete Buttigieg. They compared it to Beto's. It didn't stand on its own. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, I had a conversation with an NBC reporter, uh, Jonathan Allen, because I called him out about it. I just said, mm-hmm. why are you doing it like this? Are you, You're missing the historical context of mm-hmm. like, of 
this woman who was born in 64, Medgar Evers, was was assassinated around that time, civil rights activist, an icon. Um, four little girl, black girls were murdered in a, in a church bombing during that time. You know, our country, she, it wasn't even illegal for black people to vote at the time that she was born. She couldn't be in the interrelationship interracial relationship that she's in right now are we not seeing that a black woman running for president raising 12 million dollars is amazing uh-huh. and i was really i don't i shouldn't say shocked but i was a little bit flustered by the fact that mm-hmm. it hadn't occurred to him mm-hmm. that he hasn't seen that contact you know wasn't looking at that context so yeah. you know um so speaking yeah. of which i feel that sometimes people aren't seeing the context of of these these genders, these, these gender roles assigned to people, these, you know, and how do we have these discussions now, um, with, with gender, what does it even mean right now? Gender roles that are, have been assigned to me, it, it's a very exciting time to talk about it, you know, um, because we're having an expansion of what it means, not in the Diné, um, native culture, they've already had expanded ideas like hundreds uh-huh. of years ago about gender. Uh-huh. But do you see the um, media struggling to kind of keep up with this n- new discussions of and framework? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I I think that even as parts of U.S. society are becoming more what I would call feminist, actually, in that they increasingly understand that all the traits we associate with women and with men are socially constructed. In other words, there's nothing about being physically male that makes a person more rational, say, or science, you know, or, and there's nothing about, you know, that makes a female person more emotional, um, uh, and and that particular social roles or jobs are also not quote, like meant for, you know, just men or just women, or even largely men or largely women. I, I think that even as we're starting to understand that in talking about people being non-binary or people being gender fluid, I think there's still an enormous amount of attachment and and by no means only in the media. Mm-hmm. There's an enormous amount of attachment to the idea that men and women are so fundamentally different from each other in ways that go beyond the obvious aspects of biological sex. Um, mm-hmm. I think people believe that gender roles are really these existing things out there um, <laughs> and that uh, and that some of them belong to men and some of them belong to women. And, and that fundamental idea, I think, has not deteriorated very much. You know, the idea that somebody has to identify as gender binary or, or, or non-gender binary in order to express the notion that that gender roles are socially constructed, like it, it almost be, it, the burden is falling again on the individual right. sort of show that, uh, that really these roles are socially constructed, you know? So I think, I think that those fundamental ideas that underlie patriarchy, the notion that men and women are different and that the characteristics we associate with masculinity are more highly valued. I think these are just supremely difficult ideas to shake. Right. More highly valued is, like that stands out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, now I'll kind of dig back into the, the my frustrations. <laughs> First mm-hmm. of all, let me say that I believe in a free media, big mm-hmm. proponent of the First Amendment. We need mm-hmm. press to hold um, people in power accountable, mm-hmm. and um, and I'm cheering them on, and I just want them to be able to to do better because mm-hmm. I think that some of the things um, that they do are are harmful. And um, Jay Rosen, who I really hope I get to take his class, um, 
I'm going to NYU to get my master's this fall. And mm-hmm. um, he's an NYU journalism professor. And he was talking about press think. I was calling it group think because I kept seeing these, these male journalists just say the same thing over and over. Like they will attach to a word like her emails and just mm-hmm. kept saying mm-hmm. it over and over again. He calls it press think. And um, he said, you know, he's, he's concerned about it because it <clears throat> plays into this like horse race thinking. You saw that like Buttigieg, Buttigieg, you saw Pete Buttigieg um, get, catch a little fire and then everybody starts saying the exact same things about him. Mm-hmm. And um, you saw kind of all the women getting left in the dust. Mm-hmm. And I started seeing, you know, Beto and Bernie get labeled as authentic and spontaneous mm-hmm. and Kamala Harris and um, Kirsten Gillibrand were labeled as cautious and calculated. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's, it's frustrating to me that I feel like the press is, is still not understanding this and, we talked, we've touched on it a little bit, but how did these words cautious and calculated get moved over to women and authentic and spontaneous get moved over to men? Um, well, I'll tell you what I think. I, I, I think the authentic um, word in particular is really telling. And I think Trump is a, is the best example, right? Because, um, and I think you'll see where I'm going. He, he, because he doesn't hesitate to be insulting or mocking, or rude, or vulgar, he comes across as sincere, right? At least I think that's what his base believes. You know, he tells it like it is, he's honest, you know, which is the exact opposite of what Trump really is, of course. But women aren't allowed to say insulting things. So if Hillary Clinton had said even one of the things that Trump said during that election, if she had mocked a disabled reporter, if she had said about Trump, like, lock him up, um, or she had bragged or even mentioned going up to some man that she found attractive and grabbing his genitals, like any one of these things would have immediately been disqualified. She would have been done. Yeah. Exactly. She would have been painted as unhinged. She would have been out of the race. So I think the fact is women candidates have to be very careful and very measured in what they say. So women are restrained and maybe some of that comes across as cautious or calculated, but it's the result of women being aware that the margins of their acceptable behavior are very narrow. So I read an article by Elizabeth Well in the Atlantic about Kamala Harris. And I think she was trying to point that out. I think she was trying Mm -hmm. to point out that women have to be cautious Mm -hmm. and they, uh, but some of it still came off really harsh, I believe. Mm -hmm. So she said, um, she said she Kamala Harris delivers her talking points while dressed as she is in her uniform, dark suit, pearls, black heels. I know you think I shouldn't be writing about her clothes, but the clothes themselves are smart, cautious play. One that Hillary Clinton, frankly, could have benefited from. Mm-hmm. Harris's campaign is shorter on specific than Clinton's was, perhaps again in reaction to Clinton. Among the many lines Harris offers on the stump is, I intend to win this. You don't quite expect to hear a woman say that. (laughs) So I right away was just disappointed in this kind of narrative, but what do you see as, what do you, what did you think when you saw that? Um, You know, there, there are ways. So these kinds of, um, so what you're, I think what you hear in that is some sexism in a way, right? Right. Like you hear some, uh, some, there's some troubling speech in there. And I think certainly when it comes to the clothes issue, women get flack for whatever they wear, 
uh, public women, you know, women who are out in the public sphere. If you show too much cleavage, then you're not a serious person. But if you don't show cleavage, then you're being dowdy, you know, or you're not sufficiently attractive and feminine. And I and I think what was said about Angela Merkel in Germany, right? You know, is a great example, right? So she was known for wearing modest, plain attire, and she was criticized to some extent, you know, for not being particularly feminine and her dress. And then the one night she wears a dress that shows cleavage uh, to an opera house opening night, the, the Daily Mail runs a photo uh, with a headline referring to Angela Merkel's weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> you know, so so you can't win. Um, right. You can't win. Now, now with regard to seeing. Um, to Kamala Harris saying, I intend to win this. Mm. You know, I think maybe what stuck out for the author was that maybe if a woman says that, it comes across as arrogant in a way that it wouldn't if it was a man saying it, because it is stereotypically unfeminine to be ambitious or to be so ambitious that it might mean beating out a man for a top job. Right. You know, so that's what the author is kind of reacting to and finding, um, and finding, unexpected, you know, not really sure. And in terms of the specifics thing, that's, you know, that's interesting. I was, I was at a conference about American politics and elections a few years ago. And one of the things I learned from a paper there was that there's a, there's a characteristic that we judge um, candidates on, and that is being competent, right? Right. Uh, Showing a lot of competence. And you can imagine one of the ways in which you would show competence is in your familiarity with uh, policy and, you know, sort of specific policies and so forth. And, you know, having lots of specific concrete policy ideas that are grounded. And one of the things I learned at that panel from that paper was that when male candidates show competence, they get rewarded in terms of popular support Mm -hmm. for that. But when women do it, women get punished. Um, Mm. It's, it must be seen somehow as just unfeminine, as being like improperly womanly to come across as being too competent. I, I don't know what it taps into, whether it's like a geekiness or a nerdiness that, you know, belongs less um, to women. But I wonder, again, if maybe that's what the author was talking about when she says, you know, Harris's campaign is intentionally shorter on specifics. She's going to come across less as a policy geek you know, and more in some, in some other way that's going to be more pleasing and that she won't be punished for. You know, um, I, I would buy that analysis. I just wish that she had kind of delved more into that instead of just saying that because it can leave so many open interpretations. And I don't doubt that. I, I've, I've said this to my friends for years when we're talking about politics and policy that um, we see that the public, and one of the reasons why I think a lot of people are draw, drawn to someone like Bernie Sanders or they were draw, drawn to like Jill Stein was because mm-hmm. if you say things Policy is, as you know, is incredibly complicated, you know, drafting it and getting it put into committee or trying to get it passed. All of that is an uphill battle and um, distilling it into just a few words, millionaires and billionaires. We got to tax them. You know, Mm -hmm. we need to get health care to everybody. Uh Free college. That sounds fantastic. Mm -hmm. How are you going to do that? And but a lot of people I can see being drawn to just the basics of that. Um, but I wish there had been some clarity in that, um, in that article, there was, it was more observation without delving beyond that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So I'd like to talk to about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders for a moment. Um, so, you know, speaking of Bernie Sanders, both mm-hmm. of them are, are lauded as some of the most liberal senators. And um, during this election, Warren has been dogged by the, in the media for her DNA test and her discussion um, about her ancestry. And yes, you know, some of that was, you know, on her because she decided to get the DNA test. I think people would have let it go. Um, but, it, uh, you know, it was brought back in. And But Bernie Sanders hasn't released his taxes. And as you know, with what's going on with Trump, that mm-hmm. the taxes has major implications depending on what's in there. And it's really been a blip of controversy. You could just see just so many people in the media. I've seen a couple of people say they'd like to see them, but it mm-hmm. hasn't caused him any controversy. Controversy seems to just stick to female mm-hmm. candidates and really drag them down mm-hmm. um, so much more than men. You kind of touched on that a little bit before, but mm-hmm. you know, with Trump being able to do whatever he wants, mm-hmm. you know, why is this, why is this happening? You know, I think it's because there's a double standard uh, that applies to women running for presidential office and maybe in other circumstances as well. So like you said, Trump doesn't release his tax returns. So I guess Sanders figures he doesn't have to either. Um, and both of them cleared the bar for being a presidential candidate just by being male, because all of our previous presidents have been male. Um, but when women are running, I think the temptation is to find any possible way in which they're unsuitable. Um, and because stereotypically the idea of being dishonest sticks more to women than to men, right. any kind of controversy, like especially if a woman can be made to look dishonest, can do a lot of damage um, to a woman's candidacy. So labeling a woman as a liar uh, can be more powerful than labeling a male candidate this way because honesty is more closely associated with something that women are supposed to be. Um, and so dishonesty signals not only the dishonesty itself, but the violation of a feminine gender expectation that we expect, you know, women are supposed to be honest. So this is why Trump, like a a huge liar, was able to use the label of liar with such resonance against Clinton in 2016, uh, despite himself being by any calculus, the most frequently lying candidate of all time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's to me, it's, um, it's again, I'm not shocked. I'm, I'm still frustrated by the fact that, um, it's just day after day after day, um, and I think maybe that's a, a chaos pattern. I don't know. Did, is that something that Putin maybe taught him? <laughs> <don't Yeah>. <laughs> it seems that yeah. Yeah, lots of chaos seems to be very effective in uh, mm-hmm. authoritarian regimes. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, you always keep changing the, you know, keep cha- moving the target and changing the target and giving people something yet something else to be upset about. Exactly. Yeah. It's fair. Mm-hmm. It's extremely effective. I've seen it. I, I even think today with him discussing how he's going to get tougher on the border, part of me was like, is this a distraction from the, you know, they're finally going to release a redacted version of the Mueller report, but mm-hmm. can never tell. What, what's a distraction from what? I mean, for goodness sakes, like the, um, you know, the, the other day when he said that he was going to, um, you know, raise tariffs on Mexico if Mexico didn't, you know, slow down the, you know, the flood of people coming over the the border, which itself, by the way, is a completely artificially constructed set of images. Like the, the, you know, they're, they're just channeling people into so few places that they come across as extremely crowded and disastrous. And it, you know, it, it freaks, you know, freaks people out, makes them upset, but he signed a trade agreement that forbids 
putting tariffs on Mexico. So it's like, you know, what's, it just seems like he's forgetting about what he's doing or keeping track of the policies that he's throwing out there. So I think what, I think what in some ways with the media and the public are having trouble with is that, you know, we kind of constantly want, want to correct what he's said because it's wrong and it's contradictory. We get very caught up in kind of like correcting and, you know, instead of, than just focusing on any one thing it can, until it can actually be dealt with. Absolutely. Uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to ask you this. Um, I have <clears throat> started talking to members of for the press, um, the ones that have approached me to kind of see how they could do better. I don't really feel that it's my job to do something like that, nor, nor do I, I feel qualified enough to have a conversation with them about this, but what would you do with, with your background in a, you know, in a couple sentences, what would you tell them to start being conscious of when, when covering male and female candidates? Um, what do you think some of the one or two steps that they could take to kind of make their coverage a little bit more even, or to kind of be more aware of, of how they're going about it? Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a good, I think it's a good question. I mean, one good idea would be that everybody should become a little more familiar with, you know, the main tenets of feminism, right? That they should become aware of what conscious and unconscious stereotypes we tend to carry around with us. Um, and then see if they are actually treating candidates equally, if they're asking, you know, the same kinds of questions of, um, you know, of male and female candidates and to see if they're, uh, you know, and also I think I would ask, I would ask candidates um, if they've had experiences um, of being covered in a biased way, right? And just to try to bring out some of these things right? Uh, you, know, you keep witnessing and, you know, and noticing. And I think it would probably just be a good idea for, you know, the other thing I would say is that, um, as a journalist should read Rebecca Traster's book, uh, good and mad, because it's really, um, quite a skewering in some ways of, uh, of, of the press, um, in terms of the way that it's treated women, uh, candidates and women politicians. Right. Um, no, that, that makes sense to me. Um, I, I have witnesses, I've seen it. I, um, I'm not a big fan of Bill Maher. Um, but I saw him interview Mayor Pete from Indiana and I saw him do an interview of, um, Castro and with Castro, it was not good. And, um, I kind of definitely felt, um, a bias. He started with an immigration question. It was really aggressive. And, um, I honestly see I just see their biases all over the place mm-hmm. personally. Um, but yeah, so, um, so these are the last, um, last two questions. You basically answered them already, but let's talk about mm-hmm. them a little bit more. Um, so authentic likability and electability, those words are used in a positive way, uh, mostly for male candidates, but not for female candidates. Yeah. Um, you know, with with authentic, obviously, we talked about that mm-hmm. already. Um, men are allowed a lot of latitude in what they say, whereas women have to be, 
careful, you know, to be pleasing and likable. They have to be tough, you know, but not too tough or else they're threatening or they're a ball buster or whatever. So when women are walking this incredibly fine line, they probably aren't being fully authentic, right? Right. Um, So, you know, I imagine women are angry a lot of the time. Um, So in a way, it's not surprising that women are not coming across as authentic because in the public sphere so often, you know, even at work, right, we're put in a position to have to censor ourselves just to appear normal. Um, you know, but, and, but with likability and electability, these are words that I would say just aren't as often applied to men. It's not really a question, right. um, you know, about men running for high office because it's assumed that men in general are electable, right? And that men in general are suited for the presidency. And, and also I would say there's no expectation that men will be likable. And it doesn't hurt a male candidate if he's perceived as unlikable. I like consider Ted Cruz, you know, right. who I think even among his colleagues is not considered particularly likable, right? Mm-hmm. But nobody sees this as a reason why he shouldn't be elected to office. But women have to be likable because that is a stereotype that we strongly associate um, with being a woman, with being female. Right. We should smile. We should be pleasant, even when you know the interviewer is asking you know sexist questions right. and uh, things like that. So, the last question: Do you think that gender matters to male voters or to women voters? And and I'll say this is why: um, I watched a lot of male voters on the left talk to me last election on Twitter and say, you know, I really want a woman president. I just don't want Hillary. And mm-hmm. now I'm hearing them say the same thing about Kamala mm-hmm. and Warren mm-hmm. and Klobuchar. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, um, I, I don't know if it was a bumper sticker or what I, I know I read, you know, somewhere, um, you know, a few months ago that it was, the idea was sort of like a bumper sticker that would say it wasn't that, I didn't want a woman for president. I just didn't like Hillary. And now, coincidentally, I don't like Elizabeth Warren for the same reasons. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so I think, you know, so I do think gender, I think gender matters, right? In the sense that everybody, even on a less than fully conscious level, is always judging men and women against our standards for proper femininity and proper masculinity Mm -hmm. to see if those men and women pass muster. So voters will be critical of a male politician or a male candidate who comes across as, for example, weak. Um, But I I think the fact is also that when it comes to the voting booth, gender does not matter. Um, in, In the United States, party identification seems to be what matters above everything else. Almost nobody will cross over to the other party in order to vote for uh, or to avoid voting for um, a woman uh, or, or a man, for that matter. Party identification really trumps um, really trumps everything. But that said, I think that, um, you know, when looking at primaries, for example, where party ID doesn't matter right. because you're voting for all, you know, people all on, the, the same, um, on the same team. In those circumstances, I really think I really think gender does matter. And the other thing is that I think it matters probably more in um, in a presidential race again, just because you know the presidency is something that's so closely associated with um, you know masculine qualities of like toughness and decisiveness, you know, and that and that sort of thing. So I think it matters in a background way, very much, no matter what candidate we're looking at. 
But in terms of actually choosing a candidate in the voting booth, most people just will uh, will go with their party ID. I mean, I agree 100%. That's why um, when Buttigieg said he's kind of working to win over Trump voters and Sanders says he's trying to work to win over Trump voters. And I look at this, I looked at the stats for that. And right now, only 6% of Trump voters said they'd consider voting for someone else, but they have given mm-hmm. no indication that they would vote for a, a Democrat. So, <laughs> so to me, I kind of was like, that seems like a fool's errand, folks, but okay, mm-hmm. you, know, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Right. In other words, maybe they should be focusing on um, on turnout, right? I, As, I I say, yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. And voter suppression and voter disenfranchisement. Yes. I've been telling people for a long time that millions of people were disenfranchised. Uh, the dis, uh, disability community had millions mm-hmm. of people that didn't have access or couldn't vote, weren't mm-hmm. able to either stand in the in the lines very long or the they couldn't get physically into the, the polling place itself where mm-hmm. they needed assistance. And then, of course, you had um, DMVs close in some black um, voter ID states. So they mm-hmm. made it even more difficult for people to attain IDs. And mm-hmm. I wish that that would be the focus, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. Of just really making, really making it one person, one vote, you know, for people. Yes. Over- <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. I mean, there are some there are some just simply outrageous and ridiculous things about the way that we do voting in the United States. You know, the fact that, you know, if you're, if, um, for, for many, many people, right, they can't afford to go and take four hours off to stand in line in a crowded voting place. Why we can't just do this on Saturdays. Um, why we can't just, you know, have automatic voter registration with, you know, driver's license acquisition, you know, plus other ways. It, it, It is a little bit baffling. It does make it seem like we really, don't, as a country, want everyone to be able to have an equal voice in the voting booth. That's true. But there is one party that does not, does not want that because that would not benefit them. Exactly. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Obscene. I'm Maya Contreras. If you like the work I'm doing, please feel free to swing past my Patreon page to support my work, Obscene Podcast. Until next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 